For the last eight years, my family has been honored to serve at Camp Braveheart, which is a grief camp for kids. It's humbling to watch these kids year in and year out submit themselves to this process, to this journey of grief, but more submitting themselves to a community of their peers who can empathize with their sadness, with their anger, with this unsure place in the world. Throughout the week, they wrestle, they weep, they play, they laugh, and throughout the week, they experience this strange mercy of a God who is with them in these moments, in these unsteady moments, these unsure moments, oftentimes hopeless moments. Well, every year we take an ordinary clay pot and we make it extraordinary. It may be hard to see, ordinary clay pot. We don't paint it, we don't plant a flower in it, we break it. Every child is given a pot and then the subsequent task of breaking that pot, which you can imagine young boys find a lot of imaginary ways to break their pots. It's quite a, uh, a funny thing to watch. Then we take all these broken pieces, we write an emotion on it, a memory of our loved one, a prayer, uh, maybe a question for God, and then we begin to take these pieces and put it all back together again with hot glue. Why would we do this? Well, in many ways, it helps us redefine brokenness, to place it within a narrative of hope. We're not simply what's been done to us, what has happened to us, or even the choices we've made. Our lives can be repaired, and God has not forfeited his presence or his promise to do that work. As Marshall said, we are in week five of our Camp Hope series. In previous weeks, we've looked at the big picture of mission the plight of the poor, the reality of racism, and the urgency of evangelism. And tonight we look at one of the ways we work toward these things, and that is through the lens of beauty. And while it often feels like a vague idea, or even a passive idea, beauty is perhaps more concrete than we initially think. It is not merely reserved for our preferences, the things we like or think that are beautiful. But I believe is a holy and communal endeavor that favors God's kingdom. It challenges how we think, it challenges how we act, and how we posture ourselves in a world that seems by the day to become more polarized and more divisive. Willie James Jennings, in a book called The Christian Imagination, writes about his mother and father, Mary and Ivory, Wonderful names. Talks about their devotion to Jesus in this way. Woven into the fabric of their lives was the God-man Jesus, who rather than simply serving as an indicator of their orthodoxy, became the very shape of their stories. The stories of Jesus and Israel were so tightly woven into the stories my parents told of themselves I was never able to separate biblical hopes from their real hopes. They knew the Bible, but far more important, they knew the world through the Bible. 
How do you know the world? How do you see the world? It's difficult for us not to have cynical eyes. But I really do hope that your vision tonight can be restored to see clearly a glorious Jesus who hears your groans, your specific groans, but who hears the groans of all creation and who is working toward beautiful ends. We're going to be in Luke 9 tonight, a familiar story, I imagine. Uh, It's known as the Transfiguration. I'm going to read the passage here, and we'll dive in. Luke 9, beginning at 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and all those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, beauty is a value in our church. And when you go to our website on the internet... Part of our values description says this. We were made for glory. To behold it, to enjoy it, and long for something more because of it. Well, it's clear in this passage that Peter, James, and John behold the glory of Jesus. It's a bizarre encounter. One that features kind of some uh, hall of famers. Moses, Elijah, Jesus but I think it gives us a picture of what God is doing, how he's working. This this grander redemptive narrative that God has started all the way back in Genesis. So we're talking about in this moment, kind of looking at the past, the present, and the future of God's people. I'm going to break it down in two ways, two points. But each point will have about ten sub points. So hang with me. I'm just kidding. It's not true. Who is this guy? Um... The first one is a better deliverance. The second one is a beautiful hope. A better deliverance, a beautiful hope. First, a better deliverance. Before we look at this passage, it's helpful to widen the shot here and look a little bit at what Luke is doing more broadly in this gospel. Luke is concerned with this idea of fulfillment. More specifically, with the fulfillment of this Old Testament longing for deliverance. The people wondering, God, you say you're going to deliver us. What is that going to look like? And then Jesus coming onto the scene and kind of shaking things up. 
And we see in chapter 4 Jesus coming into the synagogue and he stands up and he reads Isaiah 61. And it's like the ultimate mic drop. He reads this, rolls it up, sits down, and he says, it's fulfilled in me. I'm it. So in other words, Luke is saying the fulfillment is in Jesus. Jesus is the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord rests. Jesus is the anointed one who will proclaim good news to the poor. He will proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight to the blind. He will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, in this passage in Luke 9, it says that Moses and Elijah appear in glory and speak of his departure. This word departure in Greek is often translated as exodus. So what is going on is that this event, this transfiguration, suggests two periods in Israel's history. The exodus, represented here by Moses, and this end-time hope of deliverance, represented by Elijah. Well, elsewhere in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 18, God speaks of a prophet like Moses who, will, uh, who he will raise up and to whom the people will listen. So here we have Jesus, the better prophet, speaking better words and leading his people in a better exodus. Jesus is doing something far greater. Now when we consider the story of the exodus, this is important. God delivering his people was not simply for their sake. The exodus grounds their obedience. So God, in his mercy and his holiness, delivers his people from bondage from Egypt, a deliverance that was to be remembered. You see that throughout the Old Testament. God calling his people to remember what I've done, remember what I've done. So there's remembrance, but there's also application to apply their deliverance. So the exodus functions as a lens for understanding the requirements of societal flourishing in a broken world by generating a special concern among his people for the needy and the marginalized. So God's people were to be, what I've read before, a display people. They were to show the goodness of God, not just for themselves, but for the whole world. So when we think about this idea of beauty, of how God is working... It is not just for us to just save our individual souls and to get to heaven. There is concern here with a, a wider understanding of redemption, a redemption of all creation. What is Jesus' departure? What is his exodus? Where is he going? Well, it says in the passage, he's on his way to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he will die on a cross. But this departure does not stop there. His departure concerns his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Ascension, sorry, let's make that clear. But here, the disciples are just getting a glimpse of this glory because Jesus' work is not done. Later, a voice comes out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. 
follow him. Peter had just before declared Jesus as the Christ. When people were wondering, are you Elijah? Peter says, no, you are the Christ. But this same Christ then says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Where are we following him to? Where are the disciples going? They're going to Jerusalem. Jesus will die on a cross. He will be broken for them. And that's the call. Peter later writes in 1 Peter 4, his letter, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So even as we follow Jesus, as we share in His sufferings, there is also this spirit of rejoicing. There is this spirit of rest that is sure for God's people. Jesus is the better deliverer. Part two. A beautiful hope. I have a friend uh, named Alan who whenever he begins a new book, he reads the last page. That's the first thing he does. It's really strange, I know. Maybe you do that, but um, it's a good kind of strange. But he does that because he wants, to, he wants to see how the author gets there. So he reads this last page, maybe a spoiler, maybe not. Um, and he likes to just see the, just this process of how he gets there. He's an author himself, so maybe he's, he's learning as he goes. But what's happening here in this passage is Jesus is showing his disciples a little picture of the end. They don't really know how he's going to get there, what that even means at this point. But there's concern of a future fulfillment. They don't understand what they're experiencing. But later, Peter makes sense of this event. So I just referenced his, one of Peter's letters in 1 Peter. Well, in 2 Peter, he talks about this event in 2 Peter 1. And this is how he frames it. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from, the, from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. His resurrection made sense of this. It was and is Christ's conquering of death that sets all creation in the direction of all things new. And we have the benefit of being on this side of the resurrection, beholding the glory of Jesus and making sense of it. Of submitting our imaginations to it.
Though our hope is yet to be fully realized, we set our eyes, our hearts, and the works of our hands on the active work of redemption, the beautiful work of loving our, loving our neighbor, the work of justice, the work of mercy. This is beauty, active. Ours is a beautiful hope because it is a redemptive hope. Our longing and our experience of beauty points to the person and work of Jesus. And again, this is not a call to overlook our suffering. I know that in this room, there are a lot of hard stories. And a lot of us feel very much in the thick of those things. How do we have a language for beauty when we're suffering these things? How can I have a language for beauty when I feel trapped in my mental illness or in my trauma or in my grief or in my uncertainty of work? Well, here's what I think is so beautiful about beauty. (laughs) That's brilliant, isn't it? I love a good redundancy. Um, The language of glory, the language of beauty, empowers our lamentations because it knows of a better hope. I recently told a friend of mine who's going through some really hard things, just to encouraging him to just cry out to the Lord. That lamentation, that, that this, this uh, just confessing our frustrations, our grief to God, I, that's an act of faith. Because we're coming to a God who wants us to bring that all, and he wants to make it right. There's a, uh, I think he's an Anglican priest, his name's Esau Macaulay. He has a book out called Reading While Black. He talks about the struggle between black nihilism or hopelessness and black hope. And he makes this case that that, uh, oftentimes the Christian tradition has kind of left out the voice of the oppressed. That there is a lot to learn when we dig in there about hope. In a world that often tempts the black person toward despair, this, this language of hope for them is something that is urgent for us. I would even say necessary. And I would urge you to spend a little more time reading those voices, listening to those musicians, looking out at those painters and those photographers, those poets. There's a lot of beauty there. When we, when we think about the voice of those uh, who are oppressed, who have not always had a seat at the table. We need to listen. Consider those in your life who push against Christianity. We're kind of like, eh, not for me. And I believe there's a lot of room for us to acknowledge that maybe it's a failure on our part to display something truly beautiful and desirable. Perhaps we've misplaced our imaginations, forgetting that God has given us all an imagination, not just artists, all of us. 
to use to care for our neighbor, to care for the poor, to give voice to those who have not had a seat at the table, to create more space in our lives for hospitality. So whether you're an accountant or a painter, a teacher, um, a counselor, a barista, an engineer, you have an imagination. Something God has given you uh, to reflect who he is, to reflect his heart for his people, to reflect his heart for the lost and the least, to point to what the world is supposed to look like, but has been broken and marred by sin. We get that. But God has given us a place. He's put people in our lives to whom we can go and use our imaginations, not just for our own consumption, not just to satisfy our longing to get to a certain income bracket, but to pursue selflessness and love. To those of you who would not call yourself a Christian, I would submit, uh, and this may sound simplistic, but maybe within the context of the sermon, it, it isn't. But I would submit that what you seek is found in Jesus. That when you read the Gospels, you'll find a compelling vision for flourishing. I would submit that maybe your versions of beauty, of success, of power, may be counterfeit hopes. I would submit that maybe sin, this category of sin, is far more corrosive than you think. In our world, in our city, but I would say even more beginning with your own heart. And I pray that you catch even a glimpse of Christ's glory tonight and begin to enter further into his story. And for the artists, uh, Emily Dickinson, the poet, writer, she has a poem where she talks about artists telling truth slant. And what she means is artists have a unique gift to, to show us what is true in ways that we don't always expect. Artists, we need you to tell truth slant. We need you to remind us of the goodness of God, the goodness of hope, to not give in to the cynicism and divisiveness of our day, as clever as you may be in your art form to do that, to not let that rule the day, but to leave lots of room for hope and mystery and beauty. Uh... There's a Japanese art form called kintsugi. Kintsugi. Not a foot fungus, but an art form. You can, uh, you can put that photo up here. Uh, kintsugi concerns the repairing of broken pottery. But unlike this pot, which we began with, it's mended with hot glue. Not that impressive, really. Kintsugi uses precious metals like gold and silver and platinum to mend the areas of breakage. It treats breakage and repair as part of the history of an object rather than something to disguise. And what's remarkable about this? You could take a, a beautiful piece of pottery and it could shatter. And then you use this process to put it back together and it, oftentimes it's more valuable post-kintsugi. 
So this process of, of repairing brokenness with gold brings more value. Beauty brings things to light, not disguising brokenness, but exposing it to the glory and beauty of Jesus. He comes and mends our pieces with himself, which results in us having infinite worth. This is what Scripture understands as being united with Christ, or union with Christ. Throughout Scripture, you'll see terms like, we've been crucified with Christ, We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We are even seated with Christ in the heavenly places. There's a pastor named Rankin Wilborn who talks about these with, uh, like kind of buried with, these with phrases. And he said at the time, these, these words didn't exist that the Apostle Paul actually invented new words to describe this new reality. Something so unique happened that Paul had to create a new language. A new vocabulary was necessary to communicate what we have in Jesus. It was the only way he could describe who he had, be, who he had, who he had become. The gospel is beautiful language, new language, language that we have to learn and relearn all the time. One where we're not treated as our sins deserve, where we are made into a new creation, not simply for ourselves, but for the flourishing of our neighbor, where beauty is understood in light of Christ's glory in his work and then our work to make all things new. If we go to the end of the story, if you read the last page, kind of, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And then earlier, Benjamin read in, in Psalm 24, lift up your heads. Who's coming? Jesus is coming. This king of glory is coming. Come, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray.